Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. In 1945, Elizabeth Smart, a 32-year-old writer from Ottawa, published her first book. By Grand Central Station, I sat down and wept. It was not a great success at first. Its prose poetry was, for many, just too difficult. It would take 20 years to be recognized, and today it is something of a cult classic. It's filled with wonderful lines, and here is one of the most famous. I have learned to smoke because I need something to hold on to. I dare not be without a cigarette in my hand. If I should be looking the other way, when the hour of doom is struck, how shall I avoid being turned into a stone unless I can remember something to do which will lead me back to the simplicity and safety of daily living? I thought about Elizabeth Smart as I was reading Ken Cuthbertson's new work about the year 1945. It was a time when people needed something to hold on to, longing to find, as Elizabeth Smart said, the simplicity and safety of daily living. Cuthbertson's new book is 1945, the year that made modern Canada, and it's published in the Patrick Green collection at HarperCollins. We reached him at his home in Kingston, Ontario, Ken Cuthbertson, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Ah, my, my pleasure. I'm delighted that you've uh, decided to give me a shout and uh, we can have a chat. You're the witness to yesterday for this episode, Ken. Please take me to May 5th at the Hotel de World. What happened there and then? May 5th, 1945. Uh, that was, of course, well, the, the official end of the war was May 8th, but May 5th was the day that the Canadians uh, accepted the surrender of the German army in the Netherlands. And a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant General Charles Foulkes and his um, associate, Lieutenant General Guy Simmons, met with a German commander by the name of Blauskowitz uh, in, the, in the hotel, and they accepted the surrender. And the interesting thing about it was that the Canadians showed up uh, unarmed, the German uh, general and his his group showed up with their sidearms on, strutting into the room, and gave Nazi salutes and whatnot. Um, but they had a 45-minute meeting, and uh, General Folks uh, uh, rather laid down the law to the Germans. And at the end of the meeting, uh, the Germans, with their tails between their legs, uh, left the room, but then proceeded to race away in their cars. Uh, and they did that, uh, cutting off the Canadian vehicles. The um, At the end of the meeting, which was, as I said, 45 minutes, um, they'd hammered out the terms of the surrender, but there was no typewriter to record this uh, to get it into to a formal document. So that's why the Germans left. And they came back next day uh, very sheepishly to sign the, um, the the final surrender agreement that the Canadians had uh, imposed on them. And uh, they, the starch was taken out of them at that, at that time. They weren't quite as, uh, as uh, belligerent as they had been the day before. The Hotel de Werald, where was that located? It was in a town called Wen, if I can pronounce it correctly, because my Dutch is not very good. Uh, <laughs> Wengengen, W-A-G-E-N-I-N-G-E-N, Wengengen. Anticlimactic, wasn't it? It was. Another interesting little side note to this is that uh, when the uh, actual surrender was hammered out, um, General Criar, the Canadian commander of the 1st Canadian Army, um, gave the job of actually ironing out the specific details when the Germans would turn in their guns and whatnot uh, to two Canadian officers um, who were both of Jewish uh, background. So that was kind of a, a slight to the, the Germans. Oh. 
And one of the um, one of the Canadian officers who accompanied uh, one of the German officers uh, to uh, the final um, uh, final meeting, where they uh, hammered out the details of turning over the guns, the German guns, and all that sort of thing. Um, this this fellow was the German was a career military officer, and he looked at the Canadian who was Brigadier General Jim Robert, and he said to him. Uh, are you a career military man? How long have you been in the military? And Robert looked at him and said, well, no, I'm not a career military man. And the German was stunned. He said, well, uh, what what did you do before the war? And Robert said, uh, I made ice cream. <laughs> so that was, uh, sort of, uh, you can imagine what the German must have thought, because here's this career military officer um, surrendering to a, a Canadian who's a volunteer and he's uh, an ice cream maker. Being defeated by the ice cream man. Defeated by the ice cream man. Well, how very Canadian to be a, a victorious ice cream man. Ken, you've written about a wide range of subjects, not counting your novels. Your last book was on the Halifax explosion, and you've written three biographies of American authors, Emily Hahn and John Gunther, who aren't quite as well known, and William Shire, the author of The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Is that what took you to 1945? Well, it is to a certain extent, but um, I wasn't around in 1945, obviously. I'm a baby boomer, um, but I was I was born in 51, so six years after the war. And uh, although it was six years after the war, the, the war continued to cast a long shadow uh, throughout the late 40s into the 50s. And as a, as a child growing up um, back in the, in the 50s, I was surrounded by my, my father, who was a veteran, and all of his friends who came to our house were veterans. One of the earliest memories I have is as a, being a child, I must have been probably less than one year old, and I was in a sink in the kitchen, and my mother was giving me a bath. And in the side door came my Uncle Charles, who was uh, in the Canadian military and uh, during the war, still in the military after the war. Uh, he'd been at Dunkirk, uh, and as my father used to say, was never the same after the war. I remember this incident because he had little red shoulder flashes on his uh, Canadian military uniform. And for some reason, that stuck on my little baby brain. And I always remembered that. So I was fascinated with uh, the war right from the time I was a child. And as I said, the war cast a long shadow uh, when I was a child growing up. You know, we played uh, played soldiers uh, in the neighborhood by, with, my, with my chums. We turned on the television. There were uh, uh, war movies on, you know, but typically they were all uh, American. Uh, so you learned about John Wayne, how John Wayne had won the war single-handedly. You also edited a book called Queens Goes to War. I did, and that was, um, uh, to skip ahead to 1995, I was editing the Queen's Alumni Magazine, and um, being very conscious of history, uh, I remembered that that was the, uh, 1995 was the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II, so I, I um, invited reader submissions, and I received a large number of them from uh, people, veterans, uh, Queen's people who'd been in the war, and I assembled these into a, uh, a book that's, uh, really, I'm quite proud of it, it's, um, was limited production uh, produced by the Alumni Association, but it's a it's a fascinating little uh, uh, publication. Uh, I dug it out not long ago, copy and looked at it, and uh, I was struck by the fact that uh, just about every one of the uh, veterans who wrote something for that book are are gone now. Undoubtedly, it's an important contribution. Absolutely, and the same sort of uh, I, I remembered, of course, the seventy fifth anniversary, uh, and the same sort of thing struck me that each day you look at the newspaper, and if you study the obituaries, you'll see. More Canadian veterans from World War II are, are uh, dropping down each day, and uh, so the numbers become fewer and fewer. They are they, these are very old gentlemen and very old ladies, aren't they? <laughs> Those that have survived today. Anybody who was in the war is in their nineties now. My well, God. well into their nineties. Astounding, and you know, as I said, the war to me 
uh, although I didn't live through it, was was part of my life growing up, uh, although it was over. But, you know, my father talked about it every day. Veterans who came to the house talked about it. And uh, so, as I said, it, the war cast a long shadow. What surprised you about the year 1945 as you decided to to look at this? I mean, your other topics were American. Uh, the Halifax explosion, of course, uh, very Canadian. But you could have written a book about the United States in 1945. What, what prompted you to do a book about Canada? I suppose the dominant thing was that... Um, when I talked with uh, people who actually um, were veterans who lived through the years, through those years, the war years, including my mother, um, I thought I knew a fair amount about the war. Uh, I expect most Canadians of my age, if you talk to them uh, and you say, you know, what do you know about World War II? They'll tell you some stories. But uh, if you start to quiz them, um, their, their depth of their knowledge is, is not very great. When I started do, doing my um, research, uh, I scratched my head because I, I said, I wonder who the the uh, the Canadian military leader, the dominant one, uh, the one that most people, uh, most Canadians would have known their name. And it was General Harry, Harry Creer. And I, I had heard the name, but it meant nothing to me. I, I knew nothing about this guy. Um, yeah. He commanded the first uh, Canadian army in Europe. And that was an army of more than 300,000 men and women. Um, and that's really amazing if you stop to think about it. Uh, sure. Would Canada ever again, will we ever again, field an army of 300,000? That's it's simply astounding. And yet, I knew nothing about this man. I knew nothing about him. There are other uh, characters uh, who I encountered as well. Admiral Leonard Murray was another man. He was the commander-in-chief of the Canadian North Atlantic, based in Halifax. Interesting fact, he was the only Canadian in either world war to actually command in an Allied theater. Yet at the war's end, uh, the Halifax um, riot happened on VE Day, and that uh, Murray was blamed for that, and within uh, a couple of weeks of the end of the war, um, he was no longer in command, and basically that was the end of his career. He he left um, in disgrace, uh, retreated to the UK, where he became a lawyer, and he simply faded away. There are no ships named after him. Uh, his name is not celebrated. He never wrote memoirs, so he's a forgotten figure. And those, those are just two of the, uh, the individuals who I encountered when I started to do my research. That was a step. And, it's, and, they're, and they're fascinating. But let's go, I want to come back to that Halifax event. But I, I, I also want to come back to my question, my first question. What surprised you the most about 1945? Well, as I said, really, it was how little I, myself, uh, even though I was considered myself uh, historically literate, how little I knew about the events that Canadians were involved in and, and who some of the key figures were in those events. And when I talked to my to, I talked to friends uh, in, my, in my age bracket, baby boomers, and I asked them, questions, uh, or they ask me what I'm writing about, and I tell them. And the, the depth of, uh, I won't say ignorance, but their lack of knowledge about that whole period really struck me. Uh, and that was kind of what motivated me. Not kind of, it, it did motivate me. Uh, the more I, um, more I realized how little I knew, uh, the bigger I wanted, the deeper I wanted to dig. And in fact, you know, my book would have been about another third longer if my editor <laughs> hadn't taken his editing pictures to it and hacked out a lot of really good stuff. It happens to all of us. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about Halifax. Now, this was something I was not aware of. Uh, of course, people are celebrating the victory over Hitler and Nazi Germany is a great event, but the the, Halif the Haligonians took it to another degree, didn't they? Well, it wasn't the Haligonians so much as uh, the, uh, the um, naval personnel who were in, in Halifax. One thing that probably a lot of Canadians don't realize, uh, because we've been brainwashed by all the American 
movies and books and whatnot we read, the Canadian military were volunteers, all volunteers during the war. And in Halifax, uh, the city was was filled to overflowing with all of these uh, volunteer naval personnel who were there. My own father was there, worked in the, the naval shipyards, and my mother was there in, in Halifax. She was a native Haligonian. That's where my father met her. But during the war, um, a lot of the naval personnel who were there uh, came from other areas of the, the country, and they weren't very well trained. Uh, they didn't have great discipline. And at, during the war, uh, they resented the fact that, um, number one, that their accommodations were um, spartan, to say the least. Uh, rents were high. Food costs were high. And there was no, basically there was nothing to do on a Saturday night other than uh, for the, the sailors to get drunk and have fights. <laughs> and that was about the extent of their, their recreational activities. Uh, so there was a simmering resentment throughout the war and the part of these Canadians from all over the country uh, who were in Halifax resented being there. The war comes to an end, and they're determined to go home. But uh, they've been threatening. They've been threatening literally, uh, not just figuratively, but literally, that they were going to take the town apart at the end of the war. Hmm. And so the war ends, and uh, Admiral Murray, uh, this is a, a key mistake that he made. He um, believed too much in the, the discipline of the Royal Navy, which he was steeped in, and he felt that the Canadians, so, uh, sailors, deserved to have um, a bit of a celebration. Um, he, let, he, he gave them shore leave so that a certain number of them could go into the town and drink. And of course, uh, things got carried away very quickly. And on, on, on one night, they started to wreck the town. Um, they were all chased back to their base. And the next night, though, rather than confining everybody to barracks, Murray said he didn't believe it was the military. He thought it was the, the townies who were causing all the trouble. Mm -hmm. So he left the gates open. The soldiers or sailors went back into the town and uh, they had a second night of, of rioting and they basically wrecked the, wrecked the downtown of Halifax. They lived up to their promise, didn't they? They lived up to their promise. Uh, there was uh, millions of dollars worth of damage and there were a couple of three deaths, I think, in the, uh, in the rioting. Um, and the, the reputation of the Royal Canadian Navy was, uh, was sullied badly. Your book presents uh, a wonderful set of portraits of very different people. And I wonder if we could talk about them for a few minutes. Who do you think was the most popular person in Canada in 1945? The, the short answer to that was that there wasn't one individual who was the most popular. Um, it really depended on the region, and it depended on whether you were in French Canada or in English Canada. About 11.5 million people in, in uh, Canada in 1945. Most of them, of course, were concentrated, as we are now, along the border, uh, particularly in the Great Lakes area. St. Lawrence River, Southern BC. And a lot of us, uh, a lot of Canadians listen to um, American radio. And for that reason, uh, I would say if there was a dominant figure, it wasn't Mackenzie King, but it was Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the President of the United States. It, it surprised me that um, I, I, when I, uh, one of the pieces that I left out of my book, or one of the bits that I left out of my book, was a, a couple of Canadians who were in Berlin. Uh, for the final uh, surrender when the uh, the Soviets forced the Germans uh, as a kind of humiliation to sign a peace treaty or a surrender uh, with the Soviets. Um, and there were two Canadians who were uh, involved in escorting the the, uh, the German generals who signed uh, to the ceremony. And when they landed uh, at the Berlin airport with these um, uh, German officers, uh, the, there was a band there, a military band, and they started to uh, to play the national anthems of the of the Allied countries. And when they played the Allied uh, anthem or the American national anthem, uh, there was a, a brief um, a brief speech where they mentioned that uh, President Roosevelt had died 
uh, a month or so before, uh, and people started weeping. And these two Canadian guys wept. And reading their account of this, um, they talked about how, uh, how sad they were that Roosevelt had died. He didn't talk about any Canadian figures, but they were they were really saddened that uh, Roosevelt had uh, had died. You know, I, I, I'm listening to you say this, and I recall a conversation that we recorded with the historian Jack Granstein, and I asked him what his first memory of the war was, and his answer was learning about the death as a as a six year old, learning of the death of. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> so what you're saying confirms uh, Jack Granstein's perspective. But surely there must have been a popular Canadian in 1945. Well, well, there were. Sure, there were. Um, uh, one of the one of the well, actually it was a group of Canadians. Um, it was on CBC Radio every afternoon, apparently weekdays from I think one to one thirty, half hour show. There was a program called the Happy Gang, and it uh, actually it debuted I think uh, what about 1937. It ran for for 22 years, but it featured corny but wholesome music and comedy. There were three males and a female organist on the show named Kay Stokes. The theme song went something like, it's the happy gang with the boys and Kay Stokes. We hope you like our music and our stories and our jokes. Uh, and those those uh, four folks on, on that program were, um, I would say, if they weren't the most popular uh, people in Canada, they, they certainly were well-known. Of course, there were um, war correspondents as well. Matthew Halton and Pierre Sturzberg for the um, for the CBC. The war correspondents were well known and, and uh, very popular. Foster Hewitt was another uh, character who got his start uh, during the war years, and he broadcast uh, Maple Leaf games on Saturday nights. You know, hello, hockey fans in Canada, the United States, and Newfoundland. Uh, and then, of course, players like uh, Ted Kennedy, who was the captain of the Maple Leafs, and in uh, French Canada, Quebec. Maurice the Rocket Michard were worshipped. Who set who set a record in 1945? Yes, he did. He broke the uh, broke the scoring record in the NHL and really put the NHL on the map uh, in a lot of in a lot of ways. What about uh, popular women? Well, that's an interesting, really uh, a challenging question too, because women <laughs> uh, were in kind of in the shadows during the war. Yes. Um, one of the uh, one of the women that I wrote about in my book, and uh, it's a name that I had heard, Agnes McPhail, who was the first. Um, first female MP, and she was elected in 1921. And you would you think during the war... At the federal level. At the federal level, yes, the first MP. She um, was actually still in, in Parliament up until 1940 when she lost her seat. And then um, she uh, ran again in the, and, and got elected to the Ontario legislature and then lost her seat again in 45. But the reason I mention her is because we have this conception that during the war, uh, women came out uh, out of the homes and went into the factories, did a lot of work, got involved with um, the military, and really kind of elevated their position in the world. They did. Uh, but somebody like Agnes McPhail, who was um, a very high-profile uh, woman and a high-profile uh, politician, uh, you see her losing her seat. You see her uh, sort of being eclipsed. And that was what happened with a lot of the women uh, during the war, that they came out, um, worked contributing to the war effort. Then suddenly in 1945, when all the boys are coming home, it's a repeat of 1918. Uh, they're expected to return home, have babies, and keep house while the, the husbands, the veterans, take the jobs. And so um, when you talk about influential women, uh, women were kind of eclipsed at the end of the war. Talk to me about the effort put together by Canadian women during the Second World War. It was pretty massive. It was. Uh, well, because obviously during the... During the um, the war. There was no draft, but 
uh, Canadians uh, signed up, males signed up to fight. Uh, and as the, as the um, uh, at the start of the war, uh, there was a great rush to uh, to do this. Uh, but as the war dragged on, there were a fewer and fewer males who were um, eligible to fight or who were physically capable. Um, and th those folks uh, left, did leave their jobs to go into the military. Uh, so there was a shortage of labor. There was um, really more jobs than there were people, which was a real change from the 1930s when there was chronic unemployment, you know, up to the level of 30% at one point. Um, women came out of the house, uh, took up took up jobs in factories uh, by the hundreds of thousands and really were the, 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 the driving force in the Canadian economy in a lot of ways, particularly the manufacturing sector, when we turned out uh, armaments and uh, other materials for the military. But it was women who did that. And women also proved themselves to be uh, superior when it came to doing detail work, uh, producing electronics uh, and doing anything that, that required a bit of brain power. Men seem to be good at hammering and pounding. Women were better at thinking. I think that's still the case today, but uh, uh, maybe my, my wife uh, would agree with me. I don't know. You mentioned Agnes McPhail uh, winning election in Ontario, losing her seat again. Another influential politician who lost his seat was Mackenzie King. Yes. He called an election in um, is it May 1945, a June, June election? June 45, yeah. Right after the victory over Hitler. He took full advantage of it. Um, what's your sense of the 1945 election? There was a general drift to the left uh, in, in Canada in 45. The reason being that um, during the war, um, a lot of, uh, well, as, I, as I mentioned, the light bulb came on for Canadians. Uh, we saw that, uh, that Canada could afford to, um, to finance a massive uh, war effort that they, you know, have been doing it for six years, and the economy was humming. It was uh, Canada went into debt, a great, a great deal of debt, to finance this effort. But, but people looked around and they thought, hmm, Canada isn't as poor as we thought it was during the '30s. Times were very lean here, but suddenly, suddenly there was money uh, for all this armaments and, and weaponry, and so people thought, well, okay, if they can afford, if the government can afford to to fund the war effort, it certainly can afford to look us after us after the war. So there was a great, um, there was a great push uh, towards the idea of uh, social welfare programming, uh, veterans benefits, and all the rest of it. And the CCF, which is the, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, predecessor of the NDP, uh, were gaining ground politically and, and in the polls. And in, in actually, they won uh, an election in Saskatchewan and became the first uh, socialist government in, in uh, North America at the time. So there was a general drift to the left. Mackenzie King saw that. And so he began to drift to the left as well, which was against his uh, inclinations. He had uh, spent uh, a good part of, I think, six, eight weeks in San Francisco at the uh, founding conference of the United Nations. And King neglected to bother uh, campaigning at home because he thought, well, you know, he, being the prime minister, his, uh, it was a shoe in for him to win his seat. Uh, but unfortunately, the veterans came back. A lot of them didn't like him. And um, people resented the... Uh, the way he had um, handled the conscription issue during the war. Uh, there was a lot of pressure from the military to uh, have conscription, and Mackenzie King dithered on that, didn't want to, because he knew that it would drive away. But he eventually did, in late 1944. But only towards the very end of the war. Very much, yes. And it was only, uh, it was kind of in, let's put it this way, he, he said that uh, people would be drafted and sent overseas, and only a very few were, most were, were kept at home. So uh, the military were very resentful. And that's, that's really the reason that he lost uh, that election, because 
he failed a campaign and he was uh, very unpopular with a lot of the veterans. But he still won the, I mean, he lost personally, but the, the liberals were reelected triumphantly. And then, of course, uh, King uh, ran again in a by-election in a safe seat in, in Glengarry, uh, where the, which had been liberal, I think, since time <laughs> began or something. Uh, and he got elected there without even campaigning. Are you surprised that uh, historians have come to agree that Mackenzie King is probably the best prime minister this country had? Well, uh He's a fascinating man. As I said, I thought I knew something about the guy, but I started reading about him and I think, wow, yeah, how did this man ever get elected? Uh, but I think, you know, he, he certainly wouldn't get elected today. He wouldn't stand a chance because he wasn't very photogenic. He wasn't uh, very articulate, uh, but he was uh, a superb backroom operator and a, a deal broker. And he also had a, um, I'd say he had a pirate's uh, sense of, uh, of getting even, uh, even more than like somebody like Donald Trump. Uh, yes. MC King had it in for you. Uh, he could smile with one hand and be reaching around to put a knife in your back with the other. So he was, um, he certainly had a ruthless side to him. He sure did. Uh, and when you read about his personal life, I mean, that's beyond the pale. Um, <laughs> one interesting thing I can tell you about him is, um, of course, his, he was a racist. There's no doubt about that. The day the atomic bomb is dropped and he hears about it, he records in his diary, he says, um, it's he, he gives thanks to the Lord that um, the bomb is dropped on the Orientals and not on the white race, members of the white race. So uh, that kind of tells you where Mackenzie King was coming from. He was very much a man of his day, though, wasn't he? Absolutely, he was. Yeah, uh, the, uh, there was, racism was rampant in Canada. It was, uh, was widespread, and people didn't give it a second thought. They, it was simply uh, part of their, their life. Uh, it was accepted. There is, and there was a consistency in King's racism in that he had negotiated uh, with the Chinese. Uh, well, he, he had decreed in, in the early 1920s that uh, Chinese immigration to Canada would end completely. Yes, and it did. There was a, there was a ban on Chinese immigration until after the war. Um, similarly, there were limits on um, uh, blacks. Uh, there were limits on East Indians. There were, um, there were limits on uh, people from certain areas of, of Europe. The Jews were turned away uh, in some very famous uh, incidents, turned away at, uh, uh, from Canadian ports. Uh, there were quotas on Jews. So um, the Canadian government was, was thoroughly racist through and through. What's your sense, after writing this book, what is your sense of how Canadians saw themselves that year? Was there a sense of triumph? Was there a sense of, of abandonment, of exhaustion? What's your sense of how Canadians saw themselves? Well, I, I, uh, my own experiences from talking and listening to my father talk, my mother talk, uh, and um, their peers, Canadians, I think, in 45 and, and thereafter, were proud of what they'd accomplished. Because after all, Canada had liberated the Netherlands. Uh, at the end of the war, we had a uh, third or the fourth largest navy in the world, depending on how you count, uh, count the ships. The economy was booming. There was full employment. Uh, more than a million Canadian men and women had been in uniform during the war, uh, 45,000 uh, dead, 55,000 wounded. But, but Canada was able to pay for all this, and we were proud of that. We didn't take any money, uh, any of the American money that was doled out to, um, to the European nations or to, um, to the UK in recovery after the war. In fact, Canada gave, continued to give money to the Brits, interest, uh, interest-free loans initially, and then the loans were simply for, for, for given. So Canada came out of the war uh, with this great sense that Suddenly, we were um, players on the world stage. We weren't a, an economic backwater uh, anymore, as we had been prior to the war. Uh, and 
really, we were, we're quite proud of that. And, you know, we, I shouldn't say this, but um, Canadians, we still have, tend to thump our chest a little bit and, and um, think, uh, you know, that we're, we're something special. Uh, maybe these days we're not quite as special and we're uh, considered to be a middle power. We were a middle power in those days, but we, we felt that we, sh- were, we should be accorded uh, a bit more stature in the world, that uh, the great powers should listen to us. Of course, they didn't, but that's how Canadians felt. We felt as though we deserved it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right. I think that there's a sense of power in 1945 uh, that has rarely visited our, our country. It was certainly a contrast to 1918 and the total, the total exhaustion of 1918. Uh, 1945 stands very differently. Of course, there's another factor that we cannot overlook about 1945, and that is that Canadians are making babies like never before. <laughs> well, TV wasn't very good in those days. <laughs> They had nothing to do with the 80s. No, no. Uh, the veterans came back from overseas, and a lot of them came back with war brides. They brought ladies from uh, from overseas, Dutch and uh, English and, uh, and French and you name it, uh, came back with them. Uh, but for the most part, the Canadian soldiers came back uh, to sweethearts, um, people they'd left behind, women they'd left behind, um, you know, the childhood sweetheart, and they, they took the occasion to get married. And, of course, because the government, uh, had this massive uh, veterans uh, relief uh, yes, package yes. to put together, uh, which provided uh, veterans with financial help to go back to school. It provided uh, money for low-cost uh, mortgages, uh, all sorts of other social benefits. Um, and veterans took advantage of that. They got they got um, a new house, uh, something that most uh, Canadian men prior to the, the war could only dream of. Like my own father, for example, got a house uh, in 1945. They paid... Um, I think $10 for the lot. I saw the deed because my both parents are dead now, but I looked at the, the papers. They had $10 for the lot. I think the house was $5,200 and they paid $25 a month or something for, for the mortgage. So housing was suddenly very affordable. And you don't forget, don't forget the baby bonus. And the baby bonus that uh, Mackenzie King brought in, uh, uh, depending on how old the children were, you got anywhere, I think from six to eight or $10 a month for each uh, child. So there was lots of incentive to have kids. And, you had a house, you were married. What do men and women do when they have a house and get married? Uh, the thing is, there was no TV, as I said, or very little. The radio got boring. So there was this massive baby boom. It, it is a portrait of a country that is confident of itself and optimistic, as it had never been before, I suspect. Absolutely. And you know, in uh, it, this is another interesting little tidbit, is that um, prior to 1947, prior to 1947, anybody who was born in Canada was a, considered to be a British subject. 1947, they brought in Canadian citizenship. So that's, I think that's an indicator of, um, an indication of, of uh, this newfound sense of um, pride that Canadians took in who they were. And, and during the war, I mentioned uh, this in, in my book, that um, the uh, Red Ensign became really the unofficial, uh, unofficial, I put in quotation marks, a Canadian flag. Um, it flew, Mackenzie King ordered that it be flown atop public buildings alongside the Union Jack until such times as Canada could uh, come up with its own flag. And of course, uh, that took us another 20 years, but uh, Pearson brought in the Canadian flag. I come back to your subtitle, Ken. Why do you think 1945 made a modern Canada? 1945, I think, made modern Canada because um, it was that light bulb moment. As I said, that uh, prior to the prior to the war, um, Canada had been in the grips of the Depression, which had gone on for, for 10 years. We didn't have, in this country, a New Deal. We didn't have a Roosevelt. We had Mackenzie King, this uh, uh, 
a stodgy old bachelor who was a, a fiscal conservative uh, and really was loath to spend any money uh, on social welfare programs. Um, his his philosophy was that eventually Canada will work its way out of, of this uh, of the economic doldrums. So ten long years when Canada Canadians are suffering and some areas of the country suffered a lot worse than others, the West in particular. Um, but suddenly the war comes along. There is um, full employment. The economy is booming. And as I said, Canadians got the idea. They they realized that their country was not an economic backwater. We had was a vast country with with vast untapped resources. And suddenly, uh, it all made sense that Canada could be a very rich country. And really, that was the light bulb moment when Canadians said, "Yes, let's let's forge ahead into the future proudly and with a great sense of optimism." We turned a corner. Yeah, we turned the corner. Let's talk about you, Ken, for a few minutes. Um, you started in journalism. You went to law school. You didn't stay. Uh, you, you didn't continue in law. You went back to journalism. Um, there aren't too many freelance writers who take a chance on Canadian history anymore. Um, what? How would you describe the state of history in this country? Well, <laughs> uh, sadly, it's uh, Canadians are, I would say, largely historically illiterate. We know very little about, most people know very little about uh, this country, uh, and they even know less about a lot of world history. I saw not long ago um, the results of a, a, um, a survey done on uh, young people, and I say young, those are people under 35, uh, their knowledge of the Holocaust. And better than 50% of um, the people who were asked the question of how many, how many Jewish people died in, in the Holocaust had no idea. There are other people, other kids who uh, know know nothing about the war. They don't know. Uh, my own daughter, uh, when I mentioned to her uh, about the atomic bomb being dropped in August of 1945, two of them, two atomic bombs, the Americans dropped on Japan. Uh, she knew nothing about that. She'd heard that there was an atomic bomb, but she didn't know the details. And you, you know, you get uh, you get Canadians who don't really know who uh, was on the Allied side, who was on the the, um, the other side, the Axis power side during the war. So. Uh, it's it's really um, it's really kind of sad. But why do you think we're so deficient? Well, we're deficient because we live next door to that elephant ne- that, that's to the south of the border. Mm. As I said, as, as a kid growing up, uh, I was weaned on uh, a constant uh, diet of of American war films. Um, when you turned on the television, there were uh, you know, combat television series. It was all about the Americans uh, and the American heroes and Canadians uh, traditionally. I, whether what's in our genes, I don't know whether it's in our genes or it's a social thing, I don't know, but we tend not to, to toot our own horn too much. Uh, if you look at Creer, who I mentioned, the Harry Creer, yes, who uh, commanded 370,000 or 300, uh, over 300,000 Canadians, you look at Murray, look at people like this, our military leaders, none of them wrote memoirs, none of them have uh, ships or, or anything else named after them. Um, and we just tend, even Mackenzie King, I mean, he wanted his own statue, uh, and it took uh, better than 20 years after his death before uh, a statue was at, actually erected to him. So Canadians tend not, we tend not to toot our own horns. And even when we do toot our horns and we put up statues, these days we're tearing them down. Do you think we should do a better job in teaching? Oh, absolutely. Um, history, when I was a kid, was taught by rote. So you went to your history class, the teacher got out the book, and he started talking about the, the dates when things happened. And it was all about uh, some old white guy who uh, signed a, a treaty with somebody else or somebody who won a battle or whatever. Um, but history isn't like that. History is, it's a, it's a really a, a swirling epic story. 
and I think of the David Lean movies. I don't remember David Lean. He did these things called epics, epic films. And if you did a, took a David Lean film and you, you use that as a, to analogize, when you look at Canadian history or world history, um, David Lean's film would be like a little dot in in the grand sweep of history, which is which is a, you know an, an unending story with a fascinating character cast of characters, good, bad, indifferent, racist, uh, great humanitarians, men, women, uh, people from all races, uh, aboriginals, uh, you know, whites, uh, Chinese, you name it, across the board. It's a fa- it's just a fascinating story. History fascinates me no matter what aspect of history I start reading about. Inevitably, I find myself getting lost in the details and wanting to know more. What, how do you think about what, uh, about the genre of popular history? Um, you've written, there are footnotes in your book, uh, Ken, uh, and I don't, I don't mean that as a criticism. It's not a criticism. There are footnotes in your book, but they're not many foot, uh, footnotes. It's obviously written, uh, to tell a story and you tell it very well. What do you think is the future of popular history, the way you write it in this country? Well, I hope there'll be a lot more, uh, people who will take up the, uh, take up the, uh, the pen or tap at their computers and start producing um, popular history. I, uh, the model for me really is uh, is Pierre Burton. Uh, I love Pierre Burton's writing, uh, and there is no Pierre Burton today. There's, you know, Ted Barris does some wonderful uh, military history. Charlotte Gray does some some uh, terrific uh, popular history. Uh, but there are other historians like uh, Jack Granenstein as well, who's who's um, helped actually helped me with my uh, with my forty five book and read a very generous generously read. Uh, uh, couple of chapters and gave me comments, people like that. But um, there aren't enough of those sort of people around. And I really hope that a younger generation of historians will start po- poking into some of the corners that um, where there's darkness right now, and they'll shine light in there and, and start writing about some of the, the men and the women from, from all ethnic groups, from, you know, Aboriginal history, um, uh, European history, the, the Chinese, any group that's, that's here in Canada. I, I hope that people will start um, paying out a bit more attention and trying to write there's the stories of those people in ways that uh, are stories that then aren't like rote learning uh, where you're just reciting a bunch of facts. You're telling a story and there's nothing more interesting to people than hearing about other people. You're confident there's a market? Oh, I'm sure there's a market, but the publishers have to catch up. Uh, <laughs> there's the rub. Yeah, I wrote, you know, I wrote a historical novel um, about Canada, the uh, rebellion of 1837. It's whimsical. It's a uh, Sort of based on it's it's in the uh, the manner of the Flashman books. If you know uh, George McDonald Fraser's uh, series, uh, Flashman series, a whole whole series of about a dozen books, um, where the anti-hero is the hero in the books. And I, I kind of modeled my my book on that. And I have an agent in New York. And when I showed him the book, he said, uh, "I can't sell it." And I said, "What do you mean you can't sell it? Um, it's a, it's an entertaining story." And he said, "Yes, it is." He said. Historical fiction is a genre that is notoriously difficult to sell. Publishers aren't interested in it. Uh, and really the same holds true uh, to a certain extent for, not to the same degree, but to a certain extent for popular history. Uh, if it's if it's a juicy subject with a murder, with a war, with something that um, there's a lot of action in it and strong characters, you can sell it. But if, uh, if you're looking at uh, writing history, uh, and doing it in a more scholarly way, uh, it's a very difficult market, uh, unless you go to a university uh, publisher, in which case your books sell a couple hundred copies and then they're forgotten. I hate to be cynical, but that's the truth. It's the truth. Um, Ken, I want to thank you for, for sharing your thoughts on 1945 and on for writing this book. 
and uh, for giving us a sense of what people held on to. Again, if I can borrow from Elizabeth Smart. Yes. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks, thanks very much for taking the time to call. That was Ken Cuthbertson, the author of 1945, The Year That Made Modern Canada, published in the Patrick Queen Collection at HarperCollins. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of this Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on October 23rd by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.